The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Well, as the uh, Bible Project video had pointed out, um, there are five major covenants in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there are four covenants, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Israel, which is sometimes called the Mosaic Covenant, and the covenant with David. And in the New Testament, we have just one covenant, which was instituted by Jesus, called the New Covenant. Well, what is a covenant? Maybe a working definition that I can offer to you that might differ a little bit from what was said in the video is that a covenant is a binding contract between two parties and it, it consists of promises or blessings uh, which is basically outlining the benefits gained by each party that's involved in the covenant and then curses which are the penalty that would be incurred if the contract is breached. Now these covenants are at the very core of the story of the Bible. And if we want to understand how God relates to us, we have to understand how these covenants work, what the nature of them is. And the truth is entire seminary courses are taught on studying the covenants in the Bible. And so obviously there's no way that I could possibly do justice to this topic in a single sermon. So in today's message, what I would what I want to do is instead to highlight one key aspect of these biblical covenants, which is the idea of the power of a promise that God makes to us. And I thought about teaching right, jumping right into that teaching point, but I, I think it's actually important that we first look at what the substance of these covenants are. And obviously, it'll take just way too much time if we try to do that in detail. And so instead, I'm just going to offer you a snapshot of what each of these covenants were. The first covenant that God makes in the Old Testament is with a man named Noah. We're told that in the days of Noah, humanity had sunk to an unimaginable low point. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. It's hard to imagine what it must have been like to live in a time like this. It brings uh, to mind the chills that I felt when I heard eyewitness accounts of people who lived in the terrorizing regime of ISIS. But even that experience likely doesn't do justice to the horrors that must have gone on during this period in human history. And so God destroys the world through a flood, but chooses Noah and his family to survive the judgment by building an ark. And as horrible as a flood of that magnitude sounds like, in light of what must have been going on in humanity in that time, maybe it very much would have been seen, even in our own eyes, if we were alive during that time, as a severe mercy of God. Um, and once the floodwaters recede and Noah exits the ark, God makes a covenant with him. In chapter 9 of Genesis, verses 8 to 16, it says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you. 
the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I established my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. Through this covenant, God promises never to destroy the earth again like he did with this flood. And the sign of the covenant is fittingly a rainbow. Uh, And it's fitting because a rainbow comes after the rain. And it's a reminder of the flood, isn't it? And God tells Noah that whenever he sees a rainbow, meaning God himself, that God will remember this covenant that he made not only with Noah, but with all of life on earth that he will keep that promise never to destroy the world like that again. And this idea of God remembering comes up over and over again in the context of these covenants. A few chapters later, we find the second covenant made with a man named Abram who will eventually come to bear the name of Abraham. And God promises him that one day he will be the father of a great nation and that all the people on the earth will be blessed through him. God also promises to give Abraham a land and on which his descendants will be able to live and experience a life of flourishing under God's blessing. But years pass by since that promise was first given to him. And as far as Abraham can tell, he is no closer to receiving it. His wife, Sarah, remains a childless, infertile woman in her elderly years. And he remains a nomad wandering in tents fighting for his very survival. No child, no land. But then in Genesis 15, God gives him this command in verse 9. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Although this request seems strange to us, Abraham would have immediately recognized what was going on. He would have known that God was making a covenant with him in that moment. The prophet Jeremiah helps us to understand what is going on. In Jeremiah 34, verse 18, it says, Those who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walked between its pieces. What God is referencing here is the tradition that was taking place in those covenants in those days in which the two parties involved with the treaty would divide an animal or multiple animals in half and then walk between those animal halves. And in doing so, each party would swear an oath. May it be done to me as has been done to these animals if I fail to keep my commitment to you. And so Abraham prepares these animals in preparation for the covenant ceremony. But time passes and there's just no further word from God. And twilight arrives and God places Abraham into a deep sleep. And a thick darkness overtakes the scene. 
And then God appears in the form of a smoking fire pot, a blazing torch, and he passes down the aisle of those animals alone. Genesis 15, verse 17 to 18. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Both parties were required to go through these animals in order to bind them to this agreement. But God walks through them in the form of this blazing torch alone. This was a message to Abraham that it was ultimately by God's faithfulness alone that this covenant would be fulfilled. The sign of this covenant with Abraham was circumcision, which again is appropriate because the focus was on the seed of Abraham, the children that were promised to him out of which would come this great nation of Israel. And true to God's promise, Abraham's descendants increase and become the nation of Israel. Israel eventually ends up settling in Egypt where they are enslaved for 400 years until God delivers them through a leader named Moses. After setting them free, God brings them to Mount Sinai where he makes a covenant with the nation. And God tells the Israelites that they will be to him a treasured possession, representing him to all the nations of the earth as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And then in that moment, they enact a covenant ceremony with God. In Exodus 24, verse 5 through 8, Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And so the covenant is sworn in blood as Moses sprinkles the Israelites with the blood of the animals that have been sacrificed during this covenant ceremony. And the sign of the covenant with Israel is the Sabbath which again is appropriate because God had just delivered them out of slavery and intends now to bring them into the promised land where he said he would give them rest. The last covenant in the Old Testament is the one that God makes with King David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 to 16. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, I think many of us can see the obvious reference to Jesus here, but 
you know, when he says, I will discipline him when he does wrong, clearly shows he's not only talking about Jesus, but the entire dynasty of David, the entire lineage of all the kings that will follow in his steps. And what David wanted to do was build a house for God. And God tells David, no, I will build a house for you, a dynasty. I will look after the descendants who rule on your throne after you to establish a kingdom that will last forever because out of your kingly line will become one who will sit on your throne for eternity, forever. What's interesting is that as far as we know, no sign of the Davidic covenant was actually given. So what are we to make of these covenants in the Old Testament? These ancient practices like walking between animals that have been cut in half or being sprinkled with blood. There's, there's something kind of macabre about it and maybe, frankly, is a, is a real turnoff for us. In the least, they at least make it hard for us to relate to these covenants in terms of our own relationship with God. But the truth is, they are actually very relevant to our relationship with God because one of the core problems that these covenants address is this. How can a holy God have a relationship with a fallen and sinful people? And the answer provided by these covenants is this, through promises of faithfulness and commitment. At the heart of these covenants is the power of God's promises to give us hope for our future, a hope of a future in relationship with God. You know, I've referenced this article by Lewis Smedes before, but the power, uh, about the power of promises that we make to one another in our human relationships. And I think it's so fitting for this message that I wanted to actually kind of read from some different excerpts that I didn't necessarily read from in the last one completely. But in that article, Smeeds writes this, When we make a promise, we take it on our feeble wills to keep a future rendezvous with someone in circumstances we cannot possibly predict. When you make a promise, you tie yourself to other persons by the unseen fibers of loyalty. You agree to stick with people you are stuck with. When everything else tells them they can count on nothing, they count on you. When they do not have the faintest notion of what in the world is going on around them, they will know that you are going to be there with them. You have created a small sanctuary of trust within the jungle of unpredictability. You have made a promise that you intend to keep. Everything in our lives together depends on the power of people to make and keep promises. Promises summon the sort of social integrity that lays the ground floor for all community. Life together survives as a human togetherness, not on a diet of warm feelings, but on the tough fibers of promise-keeping. Without a promise, all you are left with is insecurity and uncertainty. The relationship is at the mercy of whatever whim or wish that a person feels at any given moment. But when we make a promise to someone, as Smeed says, we create a sanctuary of trust and hope for the future in a jungle of unpredictability in a broken and fallen world. That's why the promise is the foundation of every relationship. 
every community. He goes on and he applies this to the institution of marriage. And he says, when I, was mar- when I married my wife, I had hardly a smidgen of sense for what I was getting into with her. How could I know how much she would change over 25 years? How could I know how much I would change? My wife has lived with at least five different men since we were wed, and each of the five has been me. That's actually one of my favorite quotes on marriage, that last line. My wife has lived with at least five different men since we were wed, and each of the five has been me. You know, for some couples, the changes that our spouse undergoes over the course of the marriage seem so dramatic that there is almost a sense of betrayal. You deceived me. You're not the person that I married or I wanted to marry. You know, when I think back to the start of my marriage with Betty, what I see is two totally different people in those photos than the people that we are today. Each of us has changed so much over the years. We've each gone through our own seasons of change and transformation. I am married to a different woman, and she is married to a different man. And I thought about all of the things that Betty has gone through in the course of our marriage that basically in many ways I feel I've put her through. Um, Listen, she did have her own sense of calling as a missionary. But as a young mother of four children, seven months pregnant with a fifth on the way, enjoying her life in America, uh, the truth is it wasn't easy for her to get on that plane to start a whole new life as missionaries in Africa. And once we got there, I was one of only two doctors trying to keep a 160-bed hospital afloat. And so during those years as missionaries there, on many days and nights, she barely even saw me. But over those five years of serving as missionaries there in Kenya, she grew to love our life in Africa and wanted, frankly, to stay there for the rest of her life. But because of my health issues, my breathing problems in that high altitude that we were living in, we had to return to the States very abruptly. And once again, her heart was broken, being torn from the people and the land that she had grown to love because of my health issues. And I think even today, for the last decade, you know, um, the sacrifices that she has had to make, um, pretty much my Saturdays are 100% reserved in the normal rhythm of our life at this church for sermon prep. And what that has meant for Betty is that every Saturday when other couples are doing family gatherings and going out on date nights and stuff like that, Betty has spent Saturdays alone, leaving me totally to do sermon prep uh, with very little complaining or whining about that. And yet, what has held us together through all of these years is the power of a promise that we made to each other on that wedding day. I will be there with you through all of the seasons of change, all of the ups and downs that each of us are going to experience in our life. For better or worse, I will be there for you. And the same is true of parenting. Smeeds goes on in that article, what makes a family? 
A family must be more than a spillover of two persons' reckless passions. A family is a community created by the promise of two people who care for persons they bring into the world until those persons are able to care for themselves. Parents are people of promise. They remember their promise even when the family is a hotbed of anger, grief, and pain, as families tend sometimes to be. The psalmist said that the man who has a quiver full of children is the most happy fellow. I suspect he said it before his own children had reached adolescence. But no matter, a family is created and kept together, not because parenting is so much fun, but because two people dared to make and dared to keep their promise. In other words, to become a parent is to promise to your children that you will be there for them through all the different seasons of change that they will go through as they march on into adulthood. And you can imagine what a disaster it is for children when somewhere in that process, a parent no longer honors that promise. When I look back at pictures of my kids when they were so much younger, it's a stark reminder to me of how much they have changed over the years not only physically, but also in their personalities. When they were really young, they were just like cuddly little compliant teddy bears that did as they were told. But as they got older, they began to show a lot more of their own will. They began to question our authority. They wanted to do things in their own way. And the, frankly, the teenage years were rough, where hugs and kisses that were once cherished suddenly became really awkward. When we realized that we weren't the most important voice in their life and that they frankly quite often just wanted their own space, their privacy. And yet what held our family together through all these years is the promise that we have made to them as their parents. That through every stage that they would go through, we would be committed to them. And what the covenants of the Bible teach us is that this is the commitment that God makes to us. The big difference is that the future is not a mystery to God. He knows everything that is going to happen, including all of our failed promises and our unfaithfulness toward him. But despite all of this, throughout human history, God has been making a way for us to be in relationship with him through these promises that he makes to us. You know, one of the big controversies that has surrounded these biblical covenants is whether they are conditional or unconditional. Some seem conditional while others seem unconditional. But the problem with this view is that you can find both conditional and unconditional statements in just about all of the covenants. For example, in Genesis 15, there aren't actually any conditions that you can find that are placed on Abraham uh, at that covenant signing. You know, that God alone is the one that passes through those divided animals. And so it seems like a pretty shut case that it was an unconditional covenant. But then look at what it says in Genesis 17 when that covenant is renewed. Genesis 17, 1 through 2, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. 
Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. And you know, when you look at the covenant with Israel, that seemed conditional, didn't it? Exodus 19 verse 5 says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasure possession. There's a big if there, a big condition. But then look at what God says in Leviticus 26 verses 40 to 45. But speaking of Israel, but if they will confess their sins and their sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. For the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will pay for their sins because they rejected my law and abhorred my decrees. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. So God is already anticipating the failure and the rebellion of his people all the way back in Leviticus at the birth of the nation. And he invokes the curse of the covenant, showing them that by this exile, he will discipline them and bring them back to himself. But even though the Israelites are in exile because they have rebelled against God, this is what he says. Though they have broken their covenant with me, I will not break my covenant with them. And in fact, God points all the way back to not only the, Abraham, the, the Mosaic covenant that made a Mount Sinai, but he's going to point all the way back to Abraham to underscore that there is this consistent testimony of God of his covenant faithfulness. That all of these covenants that I am making with you still are held in my heart. And I will be true. And I will be faithful in the face of your unfaithfulness. Well, lastly, based on the passage that I read earlier, the covenant made with David seems unconditional. There were no ifs attached to God's promise to build David a house. But look at what David himself says to his son Solomon on his deathbed. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, when the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I am about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. That sure sounds like a condition there, doesn't it? In just about all of these covenant passages in the Old Testament, you will find both elements that seem to make it conditional and ones that seem to suggest they're unconditional. 
Therefore, this is what I'm arguing. It doesn't really make sense to try to divide the covenants in this manner. Are they conditional or are they unconditional? A better way to understand these covenants is this, that through these, this, these covenants, God is unrelentingly, unconditionally committed in his faithfulness to make a way for us to be in relationship with him. But we also have obligations or conditions of faithfulness that we must fulfill. Now, if we describe it that way, then there's a really big problem, isn't there? The problem is that we have failed to live up to our obligations outlined in every one of these covenants. We have broken our promise of faithfulness and obedience to God. I mean, just read the account of God visiting Sodom and Gomorrah. And you see how quickly humanity has descended into another hellscape. Not that long after the flood. And Israel's entire history seems to be one of just rebellion and rejection of God. In light of the sad history of human failure, prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel begin to speak of a new and final covenant that God would establish with humanity. In Jeremiah's words in 31, chapter 31, verse 31 to 34, it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord. Because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. You see, although all of the Jews were technically in that Abrahamic covenant by blood, most of them have violated the covenant because they didn't have the faith of their forefather Abraham. And although all of the Israelites were all under the Mosaic Covenant by virtue of their ethnicity, they repeatedly broke the law of Moses at just about every turn. But God promises that he will make a new covenant one day, one in which everyone that is a part of that covenant community will know the Lord and will live in faithful relationship with him. And that promise was fulfilled when Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth to die for our sins. The day before he would go to his death, he gathered his disciples in an upper room to take part in a covenant ceremony. And sharing a meal together was actually a part of the covenant tradition. And so he gathers his disciples around a table to have a final supper with them. 
And in Luke chapter 22, verse 14 to 20, it says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And the next day, Jesus went to his death on a Roman cross, reconciling us to God and making a way for us to be in relationship with God. But the cross and resurrection aren't the full story of this new covenant. Through the cross, our broken relationship with God is restored, but it is also that through the Holy Spirit, we are given the ability to live in faithful obedience to him. That is why Jesus spoke to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, the empowerment that we need to live the life that God desires for us under this new covenant comes from the Holy Spirit. The disciples were grieved when Jesus said that he was going to leave them shortly. And he responds to their sorrow with these words in John 16, verse 7. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, which is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That's why the Apostle Paul could write to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3 to 6. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant not of the letter of the spirit but for the uh, not of the letter but of the spirit for the letter kills but the spirit gives life do you hear what paul is saying the power that we experience to live in faithful obedience to this new covenant and fulfill our covenant obligations comes from the Spirit of God in us, not from any law. Are there conditions with this new covenant? Certainly there are, yes, as there were with all of the other covenants. There are conditions of this new covenant. We are called to live in faithful allegiance to Jesus as king over our lives. But the same unconditional faithfulness of God that was present in all of the previous covenants pursues us and helps us in our weakness and struggle. Unlike the previous covenants in the Old Testament, under the new covenant, through Jesus, we have power through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us 
and empowers us to live the life that God has called us to. In other words, the assurance of our salvation doesn't come from some agreement to a set of facts about what Jesus did 2,000 years ago or at one point that we recited the sinner's prayer. It comes from a daily life of surrendered obedience to God, empowered not by our own strength, but by the Spirit of God who lives in us. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 13 says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says this, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9 to 10, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. You see, our efforts are not a contradiction of God's grace, but a manifestation of it through the power of God's Spirit at work in us. This verse, these verses I read last week, Galatians 5, 16 to 18. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You know, let me say this as I close out this message. There are so many wrong ways that we can attempt to live the Christian life. And the truth is that many of us do that. Relying on rules or shame or other motivators rather than living in the power of the Spirit. Rules cannot make you good. Only the Spirit can. And we can't make faithfulness mechanically happen in our lives. We can't reach into our heart and just change it by our own sheer will. What I'm saying is this, we have to be careful not to define the work of God in us in such a way that we can do it without him. There is something about the working of the Holy Spirit that Jesus describes like the wind blowing in the trees that we can never get a hold of or fully understand. We must simply learn what it means to live a life depending on him. It's what Dallas Willard called the with God life. Not just doing the things that we know we ought to do, but doing them daily, walking in the presence of God in reliance on the Holy Spirit in us until we capture that sense of the work of the Spirit in our lives. We don't really even begin to understand how God is shaping the gospel in each one of us. And I want to say how sad and worrisome it is that how many of us 
live our Christian lives apart from this absolute dependency on the Holy Spirit. It is what is earth-shattering and unique about this new and final covenant that God has made with his people that can break the sorry history of our unfaithfulness and enable us to live lives that are fruitful and empowered and obedient. It is the Holy Spirit in us. And so as I close out the message and we move to communion, I just want to invite you to reflect on that in your own lives. Do you know that Spirit's power in your own life? What would it mean in every moment for you to seek the Spirit in all that you do? I mean, can I just share I, just one thing is the last prayer meeting, um, I had a chance to pray with uh, Hannah and Ryan. They were in my breakout room. And I just want to say um, that was kind of like the highlight of my week. I really enjoyed that time of prayer with them. I really sense that they are people of very sincere uh, prayer lives. And, um, you know, I shared during our breakout room there in that prayer meeting um, some of the discouragement I've been feeling lately uh, as a pastor. And uh, Ryan uh, prayed for me after I shared. And he just prayed uh, the most beautiful and tender prayer that I had received in a really long time. I'm sorry, Ryan, to sort of call you out on this uh, and embarrass you or put you on the spot. I apologize, I didn't even ask you permission to share that. Um, but the words that Ryan really spoke into my heart just lingered with me really that whole week. And it really uplifted my spirit. And I, as I thought about it, I think that's what life in the spirit looks like as I carry somebody else's burden and love them in the Spirit and how the Spirit takes that and ministers to somebody else in that. I think that life is so different than a life motivated by shame. You know better than that. You should try harder. Who do you think you are? A fear. And all the other things that, if we're really honest, are often motivating us far more than freedom and joy and power and life under the Spirit of God. That is my sincere prayer for all of us, that we would experience the joy of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the with God life every day. I want to invite you to come to the table, and if you have communion elements ready with you, that you would uh, take those. In the upper room, Jesus instituted a covenant with us, a new covenant community based on faith and trust in him and his work for us on the cross. And so this communion looks back at what Christ did on the cross. But it also looks forward to the great day when we will be with him forever. But we can also say that every time we come to this communion table, it also speaks of our present ongoing bond 
with God. A commitment relationship rooted in the faithfulness of God toward us. And so what are the ways that you feel like a failure? What are the ways that you feel that you've messed up? And every time we come and take part in this table, we are reminded of the unconditional, unrelenting, pursuing love of God for us that restores us and forgives us and, yes, even sometimes disciplines us. But through the working of the Holy Spirit in us, keeps drawing us back to himself. And so we, as we think about that love of God, let me invite you to first take from the bread and then secondly to take from the cup and then I'll pray and then we'll close in a final song. Father, we come to this table not because there is anything worthy in us, but in the weakness of our flesh and the failing of our heart. We find the solace of a covenant God in his covenant love pursuing us, restoring us, shepherding us, empowering us. And as we stand here at this table, Spirit, we invite your work to complete what Christ has begun in us. to replace our shame and our fear with freedom and joy, and to replace our despair and sadness and hopelessness with hope for a certain future because the anchor of your love and promise to us that gives us the hope of that future. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.